Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Wow, buddy! You look healthy and happy. Veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. That's why he developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Hmm. Maybe I should try some of your pet food myself. Okay, okay. I'll start with a salad. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Crime World with me, Nicola Talent, is coming to your town with live shows across the country. We're taking to the road with promoter, MCD. We'll be in Belfast Limelight on May 17th. Then it's on to Cork at Cypress Avenue on May 18th and finally Galway where we will perform at Monroe's on May 19th. For tickets, check venue websites. Omerta, the sacred secret code of the underworld. But what happens to those who break it? The old ways of looking at this about just we wait till something's happened and then we create a report and we investigate and then we arrest wasn't really solving the issue of prevention. I was trying to get people interested in looking at violence from a different perspective. The criminal justice system's like an infection. See, once you get it once, you're much more likely to get it again and again and again. I'm Nicola Talent and you're listening to Crime World. A podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. She's the former nurse and police officer who changed a city's descent into violence through a mixture of understanding, compassion and getting up close and personal to criminals and would-be offenders at their most vulnerable moments. Inspirational and brimming with positive energy, forensic psychologist Karen McCluskey is the head of Community Justice Scotland, a body of the Scottish Government responsible for reducing offending. Today, I'm talking to Karen about her incredible work in her hometown of Glasgow, which was once the most violent city in Europe, but which is now enjoying a 42-year low in violent crime. She tells me of the thousand ways to help keep a young person out of trouble, of the benefits to their would-be victims, and of the role we can all play to prevent violent crime. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So one big question I have for you, right, is this, because I'm always, I have no idea how to answer this, and maybe you can inspire me or I can nick some of your knowledge. But how do you reach a child that is in sort of, entering criminality, but is from a, a, a multi, you know, a generational, a family that have had crime 
over generations. How do you kind of get in through all those walls to a child? So my least favourite phrase that lots of public services is "hey hard to reach." Mm. I don't think that I don't think they're hard to reach. I think they're hard to listen to. Mm. I we always used a sort of on all levers, you know how. Who's speaking to the child? Who does the child have contact with? And it's amazing when you start to work it out, there will always be teachers, football, sports coaches, everybody. There is always connections. I mean, human beings are connected. And you just need to use a wee bit of ingenuity to think, who's the best person to speak to? And how do you get that information? And, and start to be able to listen to the young person. Mm-hmm. so that you can design something for them. And when you say design something for them, you mean sort of sort of encourage them, you know, through their education, maybe if they're good at sport, that kind of thing, just to try and keep them... Yeah, you have to listen to people. I mean, the worst thing that you can do to any person, whether it's an adult or a young person, is go out to them and say, here's a list of services, which one do you want? And they say, oh, well, that's no, there's nothing really there that meets my need. Sometimes they need something quite bespoke and they need to feel that they're part of it. It's a bit like we used to, we often talk about procedural justice. If you feel that you're part of the solution, you're more likely to get involved in it and to engage in it and to stay the distance. Whereas if you feel that it's done to you as opposed to with you, then you're, you know, you're, you're likely to disengage. So we've almost had to invent things. I mean, I've had to invent loads of stuff. Some of it's failed, some of it's succeeded, but I've learned over the years. And that no, and that nobody is not reachable, obviously, is, is ultimately your message there. Is something like sport enough? Is something like, you know, um, keeping them in education enough? Or does it have to be a multi-pronged approach? Oh, it's everything. There's a great guy who writes for The New Yorker, a, a man called Adam Gopnik. And what he says in, is, is in the history of crime, when you look at things like big reductions, it takes a thousand small sanities. So it takes lots and lots of things. And in a way, that's why I've always looked at public health. So I've looked at what I can do at that top end where people are already offending or or they've been victimised. I look at that middle ground where people are, you know, at risk of falling into, you know, um, negative behaviours or crime. And then I look at that prime prevention about how do we look at that universal service, supporting parents to do the very best for their kids, make sure that kids thrive and survive. So I keep saying to people, there is no magic bullet here. There is no one thing that you can do. It is that thousand small sanities, but that makes it more complex for people. Yeah, or it certainly means more more of the services have to come together, probably talk together, work together and, you know, be one force as such. Um and you have to change, don't you? I mean, the things that we provided in 1980 and 1990 are not fit for 2020 and 2030 because young people have changed, their engagement online has changed, the way that they get involved in offending or indeed become victims has changed. And we need to catch up. We need to change much quicker. We need to involve, you know, the people who are most involved in it. They need to be able to help us design some of the services for the future because otherwise we're going to be left behind. So, look, I mean, your your thought process has, has, has inspired so much change already in Glasgow. Is that your native city or where are you from? It is, yes. So, I, I, I'm just outside Glasgow, but um, Glasgow is a place that I did most of my work. So, you, you were a nurse initially and next career? Well, I, I then trained as a psychologist, so I... 
fact, I trained in Northern Ireland. So I did my initial degree in, in Northern Ireland and then I trained in forensic psychology or investigative psychology at the University of Liverpool. People will understand that. It used to be called the offender profiling course. Um, and so I did that and I looked at how people operated in groups and then went into policing. Okay. And by 2002, you were you came back to Glasgow to work in policing. And at that point, the city had a horrendous reputation. It did. It's really interesting. There will be lots of the diaspora out there who've gone away from, the, you know, whether it's Ireland or whether it's Scotland, and then come back and just thought, you know, that taking that, that gasp, that intake. When I came back, I'd just forgotten just... It wasn't just like, you know, we had the odd murder. I'd been in a previous police force which had had you know we used to have a very low level of um, of homicide and then I came back to Glasgow and it was like you know we had sometimes three and four in a weekend and there was always a, a serious incident room running you know or a homes room and, and it was just that overwhelming you never had time to catch your breath because you always had investigations ongoing and and I mean, I suppose it initially came out. I had three weeks holiday and I was a single parent who so couldn't afford to go away at the time. <laughs> and I wrote a report for the chief constable that said, boss, despite the best 30 years of policing and filling the prisons, we've made little difference in terms of prevention. And for me, prevention's the most important part of policing. You know, it's the most important Pelian principle, which is the absence of crime and disorder is a litmus <laughs> test of great policing. And, and that's how it started. And can I ask you back in 2002, because I think Glasgow and parts other parts of Scotland, we, we have a great connection with them here in Ireland. And uh, as to our criminals, they have a great connection with one another, as we were saying, and the gangs, and they work tend to work together and have a, a mutual understanding. But was there a similar thing happening there at the beginning of the 2000s? Was there... I suppose the, the, that cocaine gold rush was starting. The gangs were fighting one another for turf. There was so much money to be made. And there seemed to be a new violence there coming out from the from the 90s, I suppose, when a lot of people had exchanged armed robberies into drug dealing. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a little bit of that. But I, the violence that we were seeing was somewhat different. Mm. And there is something interesting just about Glasgow at the time and, and other cities at a smaller level throughout Scotland was that a real sense of alienation and what we saw and we used to, you know, we, we talked about it was recreational violence. We had lots of um, groups who were protecting territory but not really about drugs and about money but it was you know, and I, I think now about the term recreational violence, you know, they were organising fights off my machetes, really dangerous, really aggressive fights on, on often pieces of land. So it's tribal as such? Very tribal. Yeah, very tribal. And people used to always say to me, is it sectarian? I was like, no. It was around postcodes. It was you know, loose affiliations, sometimes it was incredibly serious. And and the level of violence that we had coming out the back, it was huge. I mean, you have to remember that when we started, um, United Nations had come out and had said that, that, Glasgow, that Scotland was the most violent country in Western Europe and Glasgow was the most violent city. And, I, and there was a realisation and a reckoning and a recognition 
that 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 in many ways was true. We had a long history of violence. And I suppose there was a kind of a thing about Glasgow that there's it's got a reputation of heavy drinking men, hard men out fighting. So you had a mixture, I suppose, of the of the the drug. Uh, the impact of drugs, you had that tribal situation you're talking about, and some sectarianism with the, the football. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is there. I mean, in buckets. And, mm. you know, and it's an ongoing issue. And we will have to, you know, we will have to think differently about how that, you know, we get that to a place where it's not the first thing people think about, you know, mm. in terms of in terms of Glasgow. And it shouldn't be because it has changed. It's got better but it's not there yet. But you're right, and it's it's interesting that you mention about the reputation because I used to say to people, you know, we talk about the Glasgow hard man. I used to say, well, what does the Birmingham man look like? You know, what's the what's the the, the verb that we use or the mm. the describing part that we use? And it's just it's one of these things that's been self fulfilling for us around I don't know about how we're portrayed. I mean, I think even in the Archers, the uh, the Glaswegian is a hard drinking guy. <laughs> so it's how we're portrayed and have been for decades. And isn't that really part of your work and your thought process that if you portray people a certain way, if they believe they are a certain way, if they're isolated, if they're, you know, they're, they're, if, if they're forgotten as such, that they will just become that? Oh, listen, absolutely. And you have to create a new narrative about the fact that we're a really successful wee country, you know. We have so much so much assets. I mean, just like Ireland, you know, so many assets in our communities and kids succeed and they go to university. And we seem to be incredibly Calvinist. So if you ask us about Scotland, we'll tell you all the terrible things and not all the great things that happen. And we had to remind people that that slide into that Calvinist narrative was not a good thing. Mm -hmm. That, you know, if you want to change your behaviour, like, for example, if you want to lose weight, you put the picture of yourself, you know, the one that when you're on holiday and you look great, you put that in your fridge and you think, I would like to be like that again. You don't mm -hmm. put the worst picture of yourself on the fridge and think, I don't want to be that. And we tried to get into that really positive, what else could this look like? What else could it be? What's great about us as opposed to what's negative? So that report you talked about doing on your, your holidays that you couldn't afford to go abroad, <laughs> it resulted in the setup of the Scottish Violence Reduction Unit? It did. See, when I look at it now, I'm really embarrassed. It was, it, it was quite unsophisticated. Now, I do have it. If anybody asked me for it, I'm going to have to say, no, I don't have it. But it was, I mean, it was based on things, I mean, just from, so I, as you, as you mentioned, I was, I was a nurse and I used to work in emergency departments. So I love emergency medicine. I do. I love, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing. You know, wounds, et cetera, excite me as nurses, you know, as a nurse. Yeah. And I used to hang around like the emergency consultants all the time and they would say, oh, well, here's how many people are coming in as a result of violence. And I would say, well, well, we're only reporting 30% of that. So I put that in report. I spoke to a bus driver who was saying, oh, my bus is off the road because people keep, you know, and we're having to replace all the seats. And then I worked out that all these buses where they were slashing the back seats of the bus and I worked out which routes that they were on because people were bringing knives into the city centre so it was like a sort of, I was trying to get people interested in looking at violence from a different perspective mm -hmm. and thinking about, we need to shift our thinking. The old way 
ways of looking at this about just we wait until something's happened and then we create a report and we investigate and then we arrest wasn't really solving the issue of prevention. So we had to turn it on its head and think, what is it we know? How do we gather all this information in? And then how do we think about this differently? And so the chief, I have to say, Chief Constable today, and I always talk about Sir Willie Ray, had said, do you know what to do? And I think I must have been touching wood at the time, and me and my colleague John Carnican said, oh yes, boss. And we went off to a very darkened room and just started. Mm. So, and so that was how it started. And he was very bold. He put us to the very outskirts of policing. And in retrospect, I know why he did that, because he allowed us to innovate and do things that were different. And if it succeeded, he could say, oh, that's part of policing, and isn't that great? And if it failed, he could say, oh, that's just those idiots in the violent reduction <laughs> unit. But, you know, and, and I hope people listening to this, if they're listening and they're interested in crime, will understand that sometimes we have a terror of error. We're terrified of getting stuff wrong, so we don't innovate. And and, and we always said that we'd, we'd try and understand what the problem is and we would understand what the risks are, but we would be prepared to take a chance and to innovate in that space. And he really allowed us to do that. And and that's a real, uh, and that was a real privilege. I don't even know if I'd get to do that right now. And it, it was exciting and you were also, you were able to draw on your past and obviously you talk about we have to change constantly so what was happening in the in the in the in the there and now and what you could expect in the future but one of the interesting things which I know you're very well known for was the idea of reaching out even though I hate that word but for those in emergency rooms who had been injured who were at a vulnerable point in their lives and who if somebody was there in front of them saying do you want to come out of this criminality there was a pretty good likelihood that they might certainly engage at that point. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that came from my sort of nursing background, and this is terrible. People will think you're a terrible human being when I tell you this story, but I, when I used to go into the emergency rooms, I would see guys and they would be, they'd have come in result, you know, as a result of a fight. Sometimes they'd come off worst. Mm. And sometimes they would have a serious injury, you know, they'd have a big stab wound in their buttocks, you know, or whatever else. And, you know, I would be saying, this isn't looking so very good here, big man, you know? <laughs> and, and they would be really anxious because see when you get injured, yeah. that's the moment. See when you get pain, that's when you're thinking about, who's this working out for me here? And there was a bit that they were happy to speak, but I'll tell you the other thing was what I saw was they were on their phones plotting their revenge. You know that tip for mm -hmm. getting a van, turn up mob-handed, you know? So you started to get that tip for tat violence that always occurred. And there was a bit about interrupting it within that emergency room that was really important. And so we employed lots of people with lived experience. Some people were in recovery. Some had been in prisons and were long past that part of it, but could speak to people at that moment when they might be motivated. You know, that sort of motivated to change. It's, I mean, it's based in, in real psychology. It's Prosecco and De Clemente, that when are you... When are you contemplating change and how can we, you know, how can we be there at that point in time? And we've got them throughout most of the emergency rooms in Scotland now. Mm. And is that, a, is it a kind of a, almost like an addiction, you know, violence and crime? Is it almost like people are on this particular path and if you can just take them off and give them the help 
that they grow stronger. Yeah, it's difficult to get out of. Mm. I mean, once you're in that life, and you will know this, having spoken yes. to so many people, once you're in it, it's really difficult to extricate yourself, and particularly if you can't move house. So for loads of the young guys that we got in, moving them out of the area that they were in was mm. really important. Because even if you decide you're going to draw, if you're going to walk a different path and you want nothing to do with it, there's all these pull factors in your community pulling you right back in. And you know, one of my one of my colleagues who said it was like taking someone out of you know Afghanistan, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, changing their behaviours and giving them a new life and putting them right back in, and expecting them to survive and thrive. And sometimes that that is impossible. So you needed to change fundamentally, often where they lived, who they contact. They needed to have a new life. I mean, you're almost, you're relocating people into a different community, getting them to make connections. It's enormously challenging. And there you have to presumably bring in housing authorities. They have to be committed to help this change. They do. And then you need new friends because the friends that you had before, you can't contact anymore. So, you know, you might need new drug services. You might need new people who can support you in your recovery. You might need mental health services. Do you know what I mean? You're almost leaving your family behind. Mm. And for so many of the people, it's the hardest thing ever. Do you know, they love their families, but sometimes they're not the best for them. Yeah. And, and, and trying to get them to have clear sterile water between what their families were doing and what they wanted to do was, I mean, I, I have got, you know, and it will come across, I've got enormous sympathy for some of the people who we, we helped out because, you know, their lives were fundamentally changed. And a hard journey, a hard journey. And of course, you know, to create that new existence that's of value, you have to then presumably give them employment opportunities apart from making friendships, what they'll have to do. They need mentors. They need all these sort of support systems around them. Oh, they do. I mean, so my my great colleague, um, Father Greg, who runs Homeboy Industries, I mean, he used to, he has a phrase which he said he hated using it. He said the best way to stop a gun or a gang or a knife is a job. The ability to earn square money, to be able to get up every day and have a life that is predictable, understandable, manageable, and where you have a sense of hope is incredibly important, no matter whether it's violence or other crime. And it was, it, it's, it's still the biggest challenge. We have lots of people who have criminal convictions and they find it very difficult to get through and into employment. And yet it is the most life-changing thing. I talk to everybody about this. Getting someone who pays tax, pays their national insurance, just gets up, has a, a life just like you and I. We get up every morning, we set an alarm, we go out to work, we earn money, you know, we get into debt, we have an overdraft. That's really important for people. And 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 sometimes convictions hold them back. So we've had to work with lots of employers and, and work with lots of mentors to get people into employment. Mm-hmm. And obviously the, the, the ideal world is where you're steering people away before they get those convictions and you're kind of like mentoring them towards a life that doesn't lead them to the steps of a courtroom. Where for some people, those life can change with, with entering that criminal justice system. Oh, listen, I mean, I, and I am trite, I use lots of phrases. I have to say, you have to jail those you're afraid of, but not those you're mad at. 
Mm. And we're, you know, and we have lots of young people who enter the system, and the criminal justice system's like an infection. See, once you get it once, you're much more likely to get it again and again and again. And it can become lifelong and life-limiting. So the very best thing to do is to get them as early as possible. Get them out, wrap around those services, and it might be a bit expensive, but you will reap the rewards in the long term. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that's what I'm most proud of in Scotland. I look at the the levels of young people we've got in the system just now, and it is it's completely different from what it was 15 years ago. And that's, I mean, that's due to thousands of people, teachers keeping kids in school, doing a zero exclusion policy where they can. It's about, you know, wrapping around young people and realising that life's complex and, and being young is really hard. And that if you can just go that extra mile, you know, once they get to 21, 22, they generally meet someone and get into a much more, you know, sort of a much more stable life course. Mm -hmm. It's not really that many. It's not really that many years that they need to be helped and steered and have all those services wrapped around them. Really? Oh, listen, it's not. I mean, I often talk about and and people will feel insulted and give me drive by feedback. Young people are a bit daft. I was. A a bit daft, you know, and I think most people can remember that period of time. And some people where they don't have that family network that can guide them through and, and help steer them away from drugs and alcohol and crime, their lives need to be, you need a bit extra mm -hmm. and you need good mentors and you need people who can speak to them and find out what makes them what makes them happy and involved. Sometimes that's sports, sometimes it's arts. It can be anything. Sometimes it's just a good teacher. The amount of guys that I meet, and maybe this is a negative thing, who I meet in prison and my dad was a teacher and they'll say, oh I remember your dad, he used to teach me judo. And I always remember, you know, people t talk to me about a teacher who was really good for them who went that extra mile and just if we could just do a bit more of that. Mm. So I ask a lot of teachers, I do, because they're great. You know. You've obviously asked an awful lot of people since you're in that office, the two of you, starting off not knowing whether success or failure was ahead of you. But you've you've obviously got a huge amount of people on board with this idea, with this just a couple of the things I was reading about that you had. Uh, there was days for gangs to come together to understand the impact of their activity. Medics got together, you know, to 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 work with the young people like you have employers, you have those all those people that are in the A&E departments. I mean, you're talking all over Scotland now that you have people there waiting for 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 like gang members and people with, with obvious sort of injuries from, from violent incidents coming in. Oh, listen, Nicola, I, I, I used to show a really, I used to show a life story and I used to say to everybody I used to meet, where could you do something? So this is what happened at the end, but where could you intervene? So I, um, I mean, I, I trained all, we trained all the dentists. So because if I punch you in the face, the most likely thing that you lose is your teeth. And I used to say to dentists, what do you say when someone comes in having lost a tooth? Or women who often had loose teeth through domestic abuse. And I used to say, this is a safe place. You need to be able to intervene and refer them onwards and, and, and validate what they're feeling. And, and it was the same with the fire service who were no longer putting out chip pan fires in Scotland because we all had oven chips. And they were going in and putting in, you know, they were putting in smoke alarms. And I was saying, well, see, if you see a woman with a bruise in her face, she's 
80-90% likely to be a victim of domestic abuse, what are you going to do? So we tried to get people to intervene wherever they could and support and do something. And we used to tell them what to do. So when dentists used to say to me, oh, you know, I had this, you know, I had this injury in and I would say, well, what did you do? And they would say, well, I never said anything because I didn't know what to do. So I'd give them a form of words and I would encourage them to do it. We did it with the same with vets because obviously animal cruelty was very, you know, was was you know, we did a, a big serial murder inquiry and, you know, it was very um, connected to, to domestic abuse. And so we trained all the vets to try and intervene with, you know, non-accidental, you know, animal injury and intervene with the person who was bringing in the animal, who was off the woman. So we did everything and teachers, I haunted them, I'm sure, asking them to keep kids in school, trying to get them involved, using the, the schools as a venue for the community and understanding that lots of the parents of these children maybe didn't have a great experience of um, school themselves. So we had to invite them to be part of this kids' education because at the end of the day, teachers can only teach what parents provide them. So parents need to be a part of that. They need to be a part of the success, you know, of of their children's outcomes. So it was a really exciting time. I mean, I'm, I've met some fabulous, fabulous people over the years. I've got a human cloning list that I would like to human clone loads and loads of people that I've met in Scotland <laughs> over the years. I'm sure back in 2002 when, when you did that report and how shocked you were by the violence and Glasgow's rating at that point as the most violent city in Europe, like it probably looked, although you seem such a positive person, maybe you wouldn't have felt, but it, it must have seemed like an overwhelming task. You know, a question of where do you start? How do you how do you provide the services for so many? Are, are the services there? Yeah. So... People always say this to me when I'm I'm talking about issues. They'll say, oh God, where do you start? I say, you just have to start someplace. I knew in 10 years' time they weren't going to say, look where that idiot started. They would have looked back and said, she knew what the issue was and didn't start at all. And so we just started really just with the people who were positive. So the emergency consultants were really positive. So we started there. You know, we started to count the amount of people who were coming in. We started to build on that. We then, you know, obviously, we tried to get policing to be better because we had things that we had to do as well. How we dealt with knives, how we dealt with those who were who were accused of um, of carrying a knife and involved in violence. We had to get better, and they were. Um, I think police, you know, policing at struck light police at the time really started to try and take the moral high ground around it, do things that were right. And, you know, there was a bit of failing. But, yeah, it's interesting. I had a lot of people, and I, I often say this, I went to speak to someone really quite senior in one of the criminal justice agencies. And his his phrase was to John and I, who went to see, to see him together, he said, it's too big, don't bother. And he gave us a cup of tea and a biscuit, and we never went back to see him. Because... You've always got people, you've got people who say, yeah, I see the problem, I'm happy to help. Mm-hmm. That's one group. You've got a middle group who say, I see the problem, but can that sounds like so much more work for me. And I have to convince that group. And then I've got the group at the end, and you will have met lots of people like this as well, who say, I don't care about these people. Mm. I'm not interested. You just need to jail them. And I haven't really got a lot of time to try and convince that group because I need to focus on that middle group and move them into that top group that I've got. Yes. So it's really interesting and you've got to be endlessly 
you've got to get up every day and think that I'm going to start this again. You know, focus on what's positive. Try and think, what's the achievable? What, what can I do today? Have I verb in my sense of doing what? Not talk about it, but what can I do? Better and not worse. Have you got a holiday since? Oh, no, I have. I have. <laughs> Sometimes it is working holidays, I have to say. Sometimes yeah. I've, I've gone to places that I think, oh, that's great. I mean, you've got loads of stuff that's really great. You know, in and around Dublin, you've got loads of fantastic community groups and I absolutely love them. I mean, you've got you've got assets out there that almost I wanted to replicate in and around Scotland. But, you know, the States has got some good stuff as well for all its negative connotations mm. and, and everything that's negative. There is some really good work over there as well that's been, that's come from the community. And, you know, you look at the Black Lives Matter you know, movement and some of the stuff that's come out of that has been extraordinary. Australia, Canada, you know, I still with pride. So if you ever see anything from Dublin that's replicated over here, I've probably taken it and made it our own. <laughs> I've met so many people over the years working in communities. I mean, it's really where I think the changes are made and it's not outsiders coming in. It's from it's people who know the language who know how to speak to these kids, who know how to properly talk to them. They wouldn't listen to somebody like me, but I think they're fantastic. I think they're totally underfunded, undervalued and overwhelmed. And I'm sure it's exactly the same with yourself. I agree. On my human cloning list, there's lots and lots of people from third sector. And sometimes they're not even funded at all. Yeah. You know, some of the mums who've come together after losing somebody against drugs, people who've been, whose families are afflicted by alcoholism and, you know, any any nature, any list of things that you want. And their understanding of the problem, their understanding of what works is probably better than mine's. I'm an enthusiastic amateur where some of that's concerned. You know, I've never been in prison. You know, I've never been a 16-year-old boy, so what would I know? You know, so having people who are really motivated around that is is pretty fabulous. And where are you at now with your figures? I was going to say the city is at a 42-year low. Is that for crime or for, for violent crime? For violence. So yeah. if for violence, it's, um, it's at a 42-year low. And you always have to keep an eye on it. I always say to people, don't rest on your laurels. You can never take your foot off the gas. And in many ways, when you've got figures going in the right direction, you need to make sure that it just doesn't tick back up again, that you don't think you've got it fixed because you never have. So you need to focus more on prevention. So when you've got your crisis over, and don't get me wrong, you can never be, I mean, I don't care how many murders there are, whether it's 100, whether it's 50, or whether it's 20, or whether it's five, it's too many. Mm. And you should always be trying to get to zero. Wouldn't that be lovely? That would be a, that would be a great thing. But, I mean, certainly there's some stuff that's going in the right direction. When I look at, you know, the number of young people, I think this morning there's only five under-18s in our, our Scottish Prison Service. So that's five. We could yeah. get to zero dead easy. And then mm -hmm. we can go on to the ones that are, you know, are 18 and 19 and 20. And then, you know, and if when I look at the prison population, the majority of people are over 35 now. 15 years ago, it was that sort of early 20s, you know, and sort of under 20. So that's completely changed. So, you know, there's lots of things that we still need to get right and we've not got it fixed. But yeah, things are going in the right direction. And you know, I suppose we can end with the fact that Glasgow, for all it was, it is now a blueprint for 
plenty of other cities around the world to see how things can be turned around and and those you know those positive um measures are, are brought in and all the lives that it'll save and make better. Yeah, absolutely. And what I would say around when I've I've gone to Ireland, both the north and the south, you're working early years and supporting parents is something I look at with huge envy. And you know, your sense of family and, and connectedness and, and your community work is spectacular. So there's things that I have to learn from you and and how things are done over there. But I like I like seeing how things evolve, you know. Mm. People always build on models, don't they? They build on what we did and we didn't always get it right. I've got a whole lecture I do in failure that appeals to my Calvinist side. Um, so it's nice to see people who are trying stuff that's different and then I can take that back in as well. Well, I suppose human beings, the one thing we have a positive is that we can change and we can learn and we can make things better. Oh yeah, we absolutely can. And I, I've always said at the very heart of what I try and do is reducing the number of victims. I know people will think, oh, well, you're only talking about people who offend here. But my sole thing was I wanted to make Scotland the safest country in the world. I really did. I thought we could achieve it if we really tried hard enough and put our shoulder, you know, to the wheel. But And, and it is achievable. I think it's it, it's more gradual. I mean, I, I love, I mean, I love, you know, I would like instant change. I mean, it's my, I'm so restless. But I've learned to cope with gradualism over the years. You know, realising that actually it's small iterations, it's small things that are done by communities and people and media, the journalism, because you're such an important part of changing the narrative and, and the social norms that change can change a country. And how good is that? Excellent. Listen, Karen McCluskey, thank you so much. You're an inspiration. Oh, you're welcome anytime. Thank you. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip and commentary.